0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to FocusC.com/slash. App or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regular scheduled podcast.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for tuning in here today. I am sitting alongside Jeff Gann. Jeff, how are we doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing great. We hope everyone is doing great as well. If you have not signed up for our new app, you definitely should. Go to focuscompounding.com/app, in which you get access to is our 250 plus. Episode backlog of the podcast, as well as an additional episode that comes out on the weekend that is a premium only podcast. Um, in the past, we've talked about the Playboy spec. We usually talk mm-hmm. about stuff that's going on in our investing lives. Kind of more of a free form show. Um, we sort of go wherever you know we want to go with it. And it's a lot of fun. It is usually always longer than about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, so to get access to that, go to slash app. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about free cash flow plus growth, investing the Warren Buffett way. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is we actually just met with a podcast listener yesterday for breakfast. And one of his questions he asked was on valuation. Mm. And I thought this recent episode that or this recent post that you wrote up for the premium site at Focus Compounding um, really, I guess, demoed out the way that you Tend to think about valuation, okay. a very much a simple form. We were talking about Hingham, H I F S. It is a bank, and you were just walking through different valuation scenarios okay. uh, with this company. And basically, it's kind of like you worked your way backwards. So you have this right here. You said, "How close can it, this company get to returning seventeen percent a year over the next fifteen years?" And you were right. and walking through exactly different scenarios. That's ten bagger is. Yeah, absolutely. So that's
0: rounding things off. It's just seventeen percent sounds like a weird number, but people are like, "Could this be a good enough investment?" And I say, "Okay, well, take fifteen years. That's a long period of time. Take ten times. That's a really big return." So is it at all possible? You know, is this like a growth stock or whatever you want to call it? Can
1: you get 17% a year or 15 years? And you worked backwards. Mm -hmm. You said dividends can add 1% a year based on what it's recently been. Uh, You said multiple expansion, So it's currently trading at like a 9 uh, PE. And you said, well, if if it goes... Yeah. On a forward basis, if it goes to, you know, 15 over the years, I can add three to 4%. Right. Uh, so right there we have a four to 5% return. And then you were talking about where you can get the other return from and it would have to come from the actual business generating the returns. And right. you talk- so that's a really big hurdle, right? Yeah. So the other things are easy. The, you know,
0: the yield is okay. Uh, not great. The PE expansion is very helpful. But then you have a huge gap. If you want a big return, it really has to be a growth stock. So you have to convince yourself: Is this business really capable of growing a lot? And you did it by working backwards. Exactly that, right? Because like, if it was a super deep value stock, it wouldn't need to grow.
1: And if it had a really high PE, it would need to grow even faster than ten percent a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said you said now we need compounding of about ten percent a year, and then historically this company has compounded at 15% uh, per year for a very long time. So you just sort of walk through, I guess, that process, right. how you typically think about it. Um, very simple, right? You spend more time worrying about the actual business itself, but I just thought that would be a, a quick thing to sort of go over before uh, we look right. at a bunch of different companies. So what I wanted to do, people seem to like when we pull up the quick FS. Excel yeah. files, the historical financials, and okay. really look to sort of reverse engineer stuff uh, like what we did with the hundredbagger episode. So for this one, I want to pull up past investments that Warren Buffett has made, mm. and just see if we could take anything away from it. See what he was looking at. See if there's anything that we could reverse engineer from it, and um, you know, just kind of go from there. So we're going to look at Procter and Gamble, which he. Invested in 2005, uh, so we will pull that up. Did All he actually right. buy shares in 2005, or did Gillette merge into it? Uh, well, I had—I'm not sure. I thought I had 2005, but let's see what. Okay. It, well, he was we
0: a big shareholder of Gillette, and Gillette and PNG merged using stock.
1: Oh, so, so maybe that this would not be as uh, Gillette's.
0: I mean, not anymore. But Gillette historically was a much stronger business than PNG. Um, and I bet the merger was sometime in the early 2000s. Okay, so then maybe that one is not
1: as useful. Um, I could be, I mean, maybe he bought stock in the open market. Uh, But this is 2005 right here. Okay. So the current, uh, it was trading 80 times earnings. The market cap was 130 billion. Mm -hmm. Revenue was on the rise
0: yeah um let's see uh yeah it it was on the rise and stuff then i don't know all the details about how much of that of much of that mix and stuff is gillette Mm -hmm. versus other things i
1: don't know when the gillette thing happened i really don't got it Um, when you think about free cash flow plus growth though mm -hmm. i mean what is it because it's like i think if you think about sometimes when a company's generating free cash flow yeah it could be because and you've spoken about this before, they all generate a lot of free cash flow right before they're about to go bankrupt. So it's like, what's the difference Mm. there? You know, in thinking about like a company actually generating free cash flow and then thinking about the future growth that it can have. Um, I mean, the idea is that you need to get paid one of the two
0: ways. Buffett talked about this with like, he gave an example of Cisco or something, but basically it's the same idea as you have in a DCF. You have a discount rate, right? Mm -hmm. So DCFs like to use discount rates. Um, but the idea is the same, which is that if you're not getting paid today, you have to kind of collect interest on that in, in place of it. And your interest is in the form of the compound interest that you're getting is in the form of growth. So you can put off collecting cash today to get growth tomorrow. Um, and then let it roll over that way. You're just kind of rolling over your interest and in getting more uh free cash flow in a future period. And so it doesn't matter to me which you get, to be honest. Uh it, theoretically, I mean for practical reasons, I think it does matter because I think some are more predictable than others, are safer than others. Mm-hmm. But if I bought a stock that was going to grow 10% a year forever or going to pay me a 10% free cash flow yield now, I would see them the same way. Now That's theoretical. Practically, it is difficult to be very certain that a business will uh, continue to grow very far into the future at rates as high as 10%. It's not impossible, but it's very, very hard. Um, And so there's a difference. But I don't think that it matters that much except for – I think that doing the calculation of free cash flow yield plus growth theoretically is the correct measure and the easiest measure and a better measure than doing like valuation – and dcfs and things you can instead calculate your um what thresholds you need to meet or whatever you want to say what returns you think you'll get um instead of having to come up with a valuation for the business you kind of buy it as if you're
1: trying to calculate what's the yield on this stock as if it was the yield to maturity on a bond or something like that Mm -hmm. do you think that's what he meant when he was talking about how he wants a 15 percent earnings yield today that he thinks will grow in the future uh, that's what how Alice Schroeder said.
0: He I think Alice about Schroeder, it. like, yeah, I mean, when Alice Schroeder said that, I think she literally meant he wants something that's giving return today and can grow. When he was, that was, I mean, she was talking about an investment that he made in the 50s, uh, yeah, for the first time and then added some more later. But um, I think at that point, yes, he wanted 15% pre-tax, which at that time, remember, is only 7.5% after tax, um, and then to grow after that and stuff, yeah. So... I think that he actually wanted something that was trading at like, you know, the equivalent today of like 13 times earnings and then growing pretty fast.
1: What do you think he, think, he thought about IBM when he invested in this company? Oh,
0: so that's a really good example. So not a company that was growing. Um, he invested in IBM in 2012. Yeah. For the first time. And so it just had constantly negative growth and constantly negative gross profit. IBM is pretty classic that way. And I've warned about this with revenue and gross profit that I like to see it rise a little bit each year. And I think of that the way Ben Graham talked about growth as a qualitative aspect, not a quantitative. It's difficult to calculate mathematically how dangerous it is if the company is shrinking. And that's the problem here. Um, so they were buying back stock and had very high free cash flow. Their returns on invested capital and stuff were probably pretty good at this point. Uh, actually, they might be hard to calculate, but let's see. Um, so, yeah. So you had pretty, you know, you had strong returns on uh, tangible capital, right? And then you had a business that, for the most part, wasn't getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, when he bought into it and stuff, it was like it was shrinking down, but it was keeping the good parts of the business and everything. So it might have looked like it was shrinking, but it actually wasn't um, uh, getting uh, worse as a business. So it, it was able to increase free cash flow per share, which is the only thing that matters at all, uh, at a really good rate. So, and it had a good return as a stock before he bought into it. So actually, even though it was seen as not a growth stock or anything, it was giving you growth stock type returns, you know, as you can see there. So, it, you know, uh, free cash flow per share had increased more than five times, uh, almost, you know, by the, t- he bought in what year? Uh, 2012. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it had grown like, you know, uh, at a pretty good rate, four mm-hmm. or five times in the last um, decade or two. Uh, so after the turnaround, so that's really good numbers, much better than many actual growth stocks. And it's because they were buying back their stock and also because they were keeping good businesses and getting rid of the bad businesses. You can see that in things like gross margin wasn't getting worse, even though the company wasn't growing much, stuff like that. But the difference is it wasn't really shrinking consistently till he bought in Mm -hmm. after that point, you have a problem. So if you look in the years before he bought in gross profit, not on a per share basis, but just in general gross profit. Every year had increased for a while, actually. Now, not by a lot, but it had increased. And gross profit's what matters more than revenue. See, if your revenue goes down, but your gross profit goes up, that can mean you're just getting rid of useless sales and stuff. So that number's not bad. If you look, he actually bought in at a time in which gross profit growth was, you know, for that kind of giant company, that's fine. That looks like a lot of big brand companies and stuff. So, and he was getting a really good price. If we look down at the price. Um, But then what happened afterwards is the problem. And that's why I say like growth is a qualitative thing. Cause there are probably signs at IBM that there was no growth and that things could get negative because they were so close to shrinking already. So you feel it's a sign of less protection in terms of your competitive position and all sorts of things. It's just like can be a pretty bad sign if you're not able to grow while your competitors are. Um, but I think he bought it purely for the financial engineering. I mean, he did an interview with CNBC where he revealed it and stuff. Revealed the the, investment for the first time, or maybe it was a different one than that. But one of those interviews, he talked about the fact of look, if you keep buying back your stock all the time, eventually you're not going to have any stock left. And that, if you look at that row, diluted shares, I think that's what it's all. That's the entire reason for his investment. That and a projection the company made. So the company also said what it planned to do over the next five Mm -hmm. years or whatever. I think those were the two things. So it's buying back three, four, five, six percent a year every year for let's see. Um, it had done that, uh, seven years or so before he bought every single year, it had bought back several percent. So not, not less than like about 3% a year. That's huge. Mm -hmm. If the company buys back 3% or more a year. And as we said, gross profit was actually rising a little bit each year. So if you look at the average, there, gross profit, um, probably in the, let's say seven years before he bought in or, or whatever, uh, it gross profits growing 5% or more a year on average. Shares are dropping 3% or more a year on average. So he's getting a stock at what P was he buying into? 12. 12. That's probably growing. It's per share gross profit and stuff by like 8% a year or better, which is what matters. So he's actually getting a pretty growth oriented stock for a giant stock. Remember, he can't buy things that are that big. They're growing like 8% a year. But it wasn't really growing it. Like actual revenue stuff is not that strong. Like actual top line growth wasn't that strong it was okay in some years but not in others that's very weak record for a Buffett company that's like three negative years within the last decade and then after he buys it it's negative all the time Mm -hmm. very uneven not um all sorts that's just not a good revenue record for a Buffett company if we compare it to anything else that he bought at the time he bought it he's a big on like consistent uh predictable revenue growth so this was very different company than what he normally invests in i think it was the business was the problem i think he liked the financial engineering the capital allocation management Do you think
1: that is a bad way to sort of start with the business? I mean, if it's not actually continuing to grow and, you know, if you're coming at it from like a financial engineering perspective, is that maybe not the best way to go about it from your experience? From my experience, it depends. IBM's in a competitive business.
0: He may have felt and I think he did feel that their business wasn't as competitive as it turned out to be because he talked to some people about why their IT departments used it. He said that he talked to people at all the different IT departments at Berkshire to get a feel for why they used IBM. Um, This one is most similar to, I talk about ad agencies, most similar to ad agencies, because although it has very poor growth numbers for a while and stuff like that, it to some extent did not for a long time have a rapid deterioration in the business quality. This is unusual for how companies work. Most businesses are in industries with much more competition. And by the time that they're actually contracting, um, the business fundamentals are terrible. In a lot of industries, in fact, the business fundamentals deteriorate to the point that profitability and stuff disappears before you end up with no growth. Like um, you actually maintain some growth even while you're having severe problems like that. So the answer is it depends. I've bought into companies. We'll see if they're mistakes or not similar to what Buffett did in that if you buy into a company with almost no growth, certainly no unit growth and things like that, but it has a very strong competitive position. Usually that works out. So, and in fact, I've been investing in companies that were taken private. I, I bought them very similar situation to like IBM. They're taken private. They've gone public again. Now they have huge valuations. They've, their organic growth is like nothing, but they're monopolies and they raise their prices every year. Um, so if you have something where you retain all of your customers, you raise your profit, you raise your prices every year, and you don't use any assets, the fact that you can't grow your business because you already have like a hundred percent penetration rate is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So if like we t- I've talked about owning IMS Health before, I've talked about um, Dun and Bradstreet, FICO, some companies like that at different times. Some of those companies have no growth really, even if they're telling you they have growth. I think they're they, they can appear to have growth, but the actual like growth in the U.S. and customers and stuff is not there at all. Um, but they worked out a lot better than IBM. So why? Because I think IBM's position wasn't actually as strong as that. Um, you know, and then though, in between examples, like we talk about ad agencies, their growth has been very, very low at times without really eroding their profitability that much, because it's probably not that competitive, but it's competitive enough that they, that digital stuff grows too fast and they haven't been able to grow traditional advertising.
1: hmm um, So in 2012, the company did about 16 billion in free mm-hmm. cash flow. So he purchased it at about, call it, six to eight uh, percent free mm-hmm. cash flow yield. So I mean, not. I mean, not. I mean, I would say that's pretty cheap, right? Even on a it's It's you know 12 no, to 13 times. there's almost
0: nothing that cheap. It looks
1: a lot like his investment in Apple in a way.
0: Yeah. So it's very similar. It's an incredibly cheap business, right? For that size, there are businesses as cheap you can find among smaller companies all the time, but you rarely find them among very big companies. So very cheap, and um, it it was very cheap, and it had the cap allocation they wanted. That's a really big thing if you combine the two. Really cheap without the cap allocation part doesn't work. Uh, I mean, Buffett, if you watch the the thing that will most likely make him buy into a business in terms of timing is a change in capital allocation. That's what really attracts him. And like he watches the business forever. He said he read IBM's annual reports for more than 50 years before buying this, you know, like just Mm -hmm. he was a reader of it every year because he knew about the company back when he, it was a big growth company when he was running his partnership and stuff. So he's watching the company all the time. What makes him buy into it? The only two things I've seen is a change in industry economics. I've seen that from him. And I've seen uh, capital allocation, the biggest one being a shift in capital allocation. So like the management gets religion or whatever about stock buybacks and things like that. And so that immediately makes them think about going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but IBM is one of those that are, if you look at the financial results though, it doesn't match a Buffett business quite as well. Why like, do you say that? Well, we can look at the past results. They're very messy because IBM was disposing of things and stuff like that. But we've looked at stable businesses before while stable, it's not as stable as some companies. So like people ask like, is Cinemark a good business? You know, movie theaters a good business stuff they have similarly high returns and better, um, like less variability and stuff. Um, probably than IBM did before Buffett bought into it. So, I mean, not dramatically different one way or the other, but the problem that I see is the revenue, uh, growth uh, line. It's very, um, and the gross profit growth line, right? They're very uneven. Mm-hmm. And so it, this isn't as predictable. Now, some things got better, and I think that had to do with disposing of some businesses and stuff. But the variability here is a little high. Um, We have, you know, for a Buffett business, we have gross margins changing by like 10% within the 10 years before we bought into it. We have revenue that, I mean, revenue being negative or gross profit being negative in four out of the 10 years or something is something you never see with a Buffett business. He never buys into things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's some cyclical companies he's bought into like bought the entire company for Berkshire where that's happened. But I don't know how much of that is disposals of the business and everything. And then as it turned out, you see that it turned into negative revenue for years and years uh, after he bought into it. So it turned out to be a very bad investment that way. Certainly. I mean, I think it turned out to be a much worse investment. Than the actual losses Berkshire had on it, like in terms of how far off it was from what he would have predicted and expected. I think it was a big disappointment for him that way. There's no way he would have bought in knowing what was going to happen in the next few years. Do you know what year he
1: sold out? No. Uh, it wasn't that long, though. I was going to say, was it like 2016 or 2017? Uh, let's see. He kept it for several years.
0: That's we in 2012. 2012. We don't. 2012 Mm -hmm. that sounds about right then i guess i don't know what year he sold out but yeah he, he would have kept it for less than five years or something
1: um it was a like the apple one right
0: very big investment at the time he made it it would have been berkshire's biggest investment
1: right imagine how easy it would have been for him to acquire that stake at such a large company like that yeah it was very easy i mean he's even talked about apple before you were saying before telling me one time off air that he was surprised wasn't that Apple, how quickly he was able to well, acquire IBM that position? was the most surprising. It was because IBM. Because
0: IBM, Berkshire was buying a ton and the company was buying a ton at the same time. That's right. That's and they were able to get it. I mean, it was an unpopular stock when he bought into it. Yeah. And it became even more unpopular. Sure.
1: Let's look at Apple. Okay. Okay, so he invested in Apple in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2000. This
0: also does not look like a Buffett company, but for different reasons. Really? Why yeah, do you say that? Yeah, revenue growth is too fast. So Buffett almost never invests in a company with revenue, gross, revenue growth
1: this fast. And in gross profit growth. So call it a $603 billion market cap. Now, obviously, it's in the trillions. Yeah.
0: And Apple's performance as a business has not been good since Buffett bought into it. That's correct. I mean, uh, Apple's performance as a business has deteriorated. If you look at their gross profits. Dramatically since like eight years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unlike some other of the fang type businesses, which are more, uh, their results are more the same
1: of what they had before. Um, he said for Apple, he would talk with a lot of, you know, his grand- he references grandchildren and stuff. And obviously the iPhone being such a, important part of our culture and being Mm -hmm. on it every single day and he waited to invest in apple
0: yeah so what happened basically i think is he was right and the people he was buying from were probably right apple was a growth stock owned by growth investors who decided it wasn't going to grow anymore and they should sell it and they were right that if you look at the incredible growth rate to what it went down to on a growth stock normally that's when you want to get out of it because it has an incredibly high pe and stuff you need to get out of it at that point point. And then often profitability and things deteriorate after that. He looked at it and said, okay, so it's grown all this way, but now it's like done growing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now I'm buying into a franchise type company. I'm getting a price that I want on that, like the PE and stuff. So I think they were both right in that way. Uh, it would make sense, you'd think, to buy into it when it was growing rapidly. And of course, that's when that you had really high returns. But the problem for Buffett is there's no way that you would know that um, to be able to figure out... Um, that it was going to continue to last right like once he knew that people were coming into nebraska furniture mart and things like that and just getting not interested in looking at other android phones and stuff but only uh upgrading from one apple product to another then he could buy into the company but before then it's that's not his kind of company
1: It's it not a growth company right mm-hmm yeah, uh, obviously that shocked a lot of people when he invested in Apple. Uh, mm-hmm. People were saying, "Is this like an IBM 2.0? Um In 2016, Apple did 53 billion in free cash flow, mm-hmm. you know, and then when he buys it as a 603 billion dollar market cap. I mean, you're kind of right in that you know the multiples were super right. cheap on that. So your multiples expanded, and then
0: also they had um, they had changed their cap allocation, and so that's the huge one. So if you look at why did Buffett buy Apple then? He probably, I don't know why he bought it exactly because he may have been, like I said, you know, talking, like you were saying, like talking to, I mean, seeing what his grandkids were doing and talking to people at retail stores that they have and stuff about people's um, kind of how sticky they were as customers. But the real reason that was attracting to the stock is obviously they started buying back their stock. Mm -hmm. Right. All the cash they have. Yeah. Before that, if you look at the years from like 2004 to 2012 or whatever, that's not a company that Buffett would buy. It's growing too fast. Its P multiple is too high. Um, Its diluted share count is rising. It's not buying things back and stuff. It's very unpredictable. It's selling a lot of original equipment, right? It's selling people their first ever phone, their first ever whatever during that period. Not getting renewals from people that way. It's just very risky. We have no idea if they'll come back, you know. Um. So that's not a time when Buffett would buy in. He buys in when you see the shift in capital allocation, which is huge. And so multiple expansion and shifting capital allocation is basically what explains the return in Apple. Because if we look, like it's not like their free cash flow has risen a lot or anything like that. It's not from a lot of growth in the company. Mm-hmm. It's from the market revaluing the company. Uh. Wh- so where does he buy in? Let's see. So he happens. bought it
1: 2016 right here, 53.4 billion, and right. It's still, you know. Yeah,
0: but the year before, if you take a two-year average, they're the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, on a two-year average basis, we don't know exactly what Apple do each year. It's basically the same that Buffett had then and now. Um, So it's not a big difference. And, of course, you know, but the share count has dropped, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if we look, the share count is down. So on a ratio basis, if we look at, like, free cash flow per share, um, right, we should have free – well, we have, like, EBITDA and stuff, which might be better, to look at ebitda per share is a little bit more predictive yeah so we can see things that that should be going up a little bit more generally mm-hmm. uh, a
1: bit more stability in that number over time yeah you can see the diluted shares right here they've been declining call it 5% on average
0: yeah so that's his return that he's been getting has been the 5% share buyback and then his actual return, why the stock looks so amazing is because of multiple expansion. Yeah. But that wouldn't have been what he counted on. Is that happening that quickly? It's that he's thinking, OK, I'm going to get 5% a year back from the buyback. So it, in no sense, it's very similar to IBM that way. Mm-hmm.
1: Except for they're just having revenue growth, some revenue growth year over year.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a big reason why Buffett bought Apple, to be honest, is it's hard to think. He has to allocate a lot of money huge amount of money so if he likes management if they're buying back stock things like that what consumer brand can he buy into that's bigger than apple like there are consumer brand companies that are bigger right but they depend on 20 different brands here what individual brand he loves things like coke when he bought into coke it was all about the coke brand you know it had very little mm-hmm. to do with their other brands uh, gillette Gillette is not the biggest company around. Prakner Gamble was bigger and stuff, but Gillette is just an amazingly big consumer brand. What's bigger in today's world as a brand than Apple? Sure. In terms of like market cap, it, I don't know if it's the best brand in the world, but it's the biggest. Why do you think he's never invested in Starbucks?
1: That seems like he doesn't seem. To I do know a he lot doesn't like coffee, but I
0: would have always thought Starbucks is one. He but was he about.
1: has invested in yeah. McDonald's before, correct? Has he?
0: Yes, and I think he thought McDonald's would be less predictable than it turned out to be. I think a lot of value investors have underestimated how predictable um, fast food is.
1: Like QSRs and stuff?
0: It has no similarity to the real restaurant business. It's just sit-down restaurants.
1: Because of the nature of how habitual it is for some people? Uh, The sort of
0: these intangible qualities? Low ticket price, high frequency, and you're making the purchase decision alone. Restaurants are low frequency, high ticket price, and multiple people are involved in making a decision. That's a bad... uh, set up for any sort of habit-forming thing, whereas McDonald's is a very good one for habit-forming sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Chipotle is a very good one for that, and so it's a much easier business um, to predict, I think, Mm -hmm. is fast food restaurants, yeah.
1: Ted or Todd invested in Apple first. And then Buffett started buying it. That was the fascinating thing. Do you think he saw? So I wonder if that situation was like, okay, I'm going to, could you imagine Ted or Todd, whoever it was? And then Mm -hmm. they got sort of this approval from the boss. He starts buying as much as he possibly can as well. I just wonder what was that like? Did he, because obviously he sees what they're buying. I wonder if he was like, hmm, maybe I should take a look at this. And then from there, he went deeper on it maybe
0: i mean like the example i would give the things that i bought right is um i bought fico on something that was similar to that i knew the company i knew what it done in the past and stuff its capitalization was whatever it was there was overtime of me reading about it in the past and then some changes in management but they're not things that would have been huge to me but then they were buying back some stock and then they were talking about things in a way that i thought oh they're gonna buy back a lot of stock over time and then when you start thinking that way you're like okay considering how good this business is if they really don't do anything else and they just like buy back their stock this becomes a really attractive investment and i think that's probably what he was thinking with apple is like don't worry about it as being a growth company and whatever like what attracts you is it being a brand like comparing it to other things he knows better i think and that's why i think when it was talking about it when he's talked about like that people how tied into each day it is the people's phones and everything how personalized it is that way to them um once he realizes how irrational and stuff it is, how it isn't about comparing the features of the phones and things, um, then I think it can become interesting if you have the right cap allocation. But remember, he knew what cap allocation was. under Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs had called him and asked for his advice. Oh, about, I did not know that. Tell that story about buybacks. I did not know that. Maybe yeah, I read Steve it in the book. I don't want to do buybacks. It. yeah Steve Jobs didn't do want to do buybacks. Why is that? Uh, because he wasn't a finance person yeah he was never going to do a buyback he wanted to hoard the money and stuff
1: sure yeah. yeah okay
0: and he i think he knew it was irrational and he probably wanted buffett to tell him no that's okay it's not irrational and buffett told him no it's irrational it <laughs> is irrational <laughs> you did know, tell him that, that. that basically i think he what investment out there is better than you there's none then buy back your own stock and then he didn't do it you know <laughs> what um, year was that I don't know. I hope I'm telling that story right, but yeah, that's what I believe the story is. Yeah, I mean, I I've heard think I think I have heard that, that before. I believe that w- that's true. Um, I wonder. Now what I may he be thought. projecting onto the personalities of the people involved because I wonder what he thought. The motive Buffett. that I'm saying for Steve Jobs may not have really been his motive, but that sounds like what it would have been. Is that really he wanted? He wanted to be told it was okay
1: that he wasn't doing a buyback, even though he thought he probably should do a buyback. Yeah, um, Steve Jobs probably <laughs> thought Buffett was a bozo. Because he's never like created anything other than you know investing in stuff like that. That could be true. Yeah, I also think he was, that a, he, was a, he wasn't a nice person. Steve Jobs? No, he, yeah, he was not you. a nice person. Yeah, people said he was he was not a good person. Yeah, you like that uh, biography? I
0: yeah, mm-hmm. I really love that book.
1: Very inspiring. Yeah,
0: so hopefully I won't tell this story wrong. But well, I was actually I, know that, I do know that Buffett has said that he actually had spoken um that he, like because he was asked about something he said that no no he didn't know steve Jobs well or anything but they had spoken
1: and i believe it was for that very reason so we could bring this a little bit back to the pond that we fish in in micro caps and especially less liquid securities buybacks aren't really a a big part of the pie a lot of the times i mean sometimes it is but Correct. i mean if you're looking at sub 100 million dollar companies yes very rarely will a company be very focused on buying back their stock i mean what are your thoughts on that
0: Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, not to do that. And I think big companies should buy back their stock more than they do. Uh, Sometimes, depending on the company and what the price is. But yeah, you should be willing to buy back a lot more. Um, The growth prospects for very big companies are usually not that great. Whereas the growth prospects for a small company, which can repeat the same model over and over, are pretty good. If you can keep doing the same thing over and over again, then it makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like you're looking at MVR now. NVR's business model basically is to option instead of buy. Mm -hmm. So instead of bloating their balance sheet with a lot of land, as other companies do, they try to keep the land off their balance sheet. And then that immediately turns into free cash flow instead of more land. And then they plow that back into buying back their own stock. And as you can see over time, right, there's two models. One model is to have your land uh, item on your balance sheet grow at a rate all the time. We talked about, like, about that with like greenbrick Partners or something. Your land per share and stuff goes up. Mm-hmm. C- kind of theoretically for a home builder, if you like the areas they're in and stuff, what you would value it on is the increase in land per share. Like how much acreage do I get per share? How many lots do I get per share? And basically how much value in land do I get per, per share? Because it is a real estate speculation always, like a long-term speculation, but it is. And so you can invest in growing your land by 10, 20, 30% a year or whatever, or you can not invest in land and instead buy back your stock, you know, because then you get cash, mm-hmm. right? So they don't. And so if you look, they generate free cash flow when other home builders don't. And then they use that to buy back their own stock. If they just didn't um, do the second part, it wouldn't be a very good business. If they just had high returns on capital because they were optioning land and stuff instead of buying it, and so you weren't, you know, you were turning much faster. If you had very high turns, but you weren't buying back your own stock, all that would happen is you pile up cash on your balance sheet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you could see that right here. Look at their free cash flow. And then every year, you know, how much they they spend to basically buy back their stock.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because there's not really a need in home building, theoretically, for not generating free cash flow. But home builders don't do it because they turn into Um, businesses that own a lot of land, like land banks. Yeah. And so it's kind of like the idea of, okay, well, should a financial institution originate stuff and then not keep it on their balance sheet? Um, you see that more often, like financial, uh, MVR is unusual in like the degree of innovation in terms of its model, compared to other home builders. Whereas like I'd say with things like banks, and insurers and stuff, you've seen that, that some of them said, okay, well, I'm not really going to be in the business of holding the stuff on my balance sheet. And so they experiment with all sorts of different business models, um, over the decades. And that's not something that's happened with home builders so much. Home builders almost always end up holding a lot of land, whether that's kind of their core business or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it is also a question then of what asset would you rather have? And stuff, Would you rather just be a stream of free cash flow that you buy back or would you rather have a lot of land and stuff? If it was the 1970s, then holding a lot of land wouldn't be as much of a problem because the value of the land would be going up all the time. Like, you know, and the margins were really bad on home builders and that, like the actual home building was very hard to make money. So it, some of it is also like the environment that they were in. I guess NVR was in a much better environment the last 20 years for doing what they do um, than other home builders.
1: Is a company buying back their stock typically? I mean, is that what you really like to see when you look at companies? If they have excess cash and all no need the for any other investments? Of all the things you could screen for to buy an investment today,
0: buybacks might be the number one best thing to see. But I don't, I wouldn't run that screen. But the reason why is because it's one item that combines several different things. So if a stock has bought back stock, let's look at NVR. Okay. Yep. If a company has bought back stock every, has reduced its diluted shares outstanding every single year for, let's say 10 or more years. So they had one year that it rose. uh, And then they had two during the financial crisis and stuff. So it has risen sometimes. Did they grant options? That might be option. Probably. On average, it's been going down. Yeah. But um, so if they're buying back stock like every single year or they're doing huge buybacks, either one, um, it's a very good sign because it means they have free cash flow. It means they think they have financial strength. It means they believe in their business. And it acts most importantly as a safety valve to not have declines on invested capital as it grows. Because the biggest problem that most Mm -hmm. companies have is that if you grow your assets, then you will have declining um, returns over time. This is something that I mentioned a little bit, but I don't think anyone, I think it's easy not to appreciate what I'm saying, which is that it's like one of my biggest warnings. High current period asset growth, is the best indicator of poor future returns. That's true for industries, companies, whatever. So yes, we like growth. But if you're looking at a company that's growing its assets, it could be a financial institution, it could be an industrial company, it could be anything. If it's growing 20% a year or something, that's, we like that there's 20% growth because it means we have high returns on capital and we have something to reinvest in. But it's a huge warning sign. It's much easier to go into something that's have to find good opportunities for growth and something that's growing
1: 0% a year than 20% a year. You know, the best example of that, what that was for me what? in like, I guess my learning process yeah. is banks because banks run into those issues Yes, for their mm-hmm. return on equity. So then a lot of times what they'll do is they'll either a pay out a special dividend or, you know, do something with that, right? The, the excess cash or whatever. So it was really learning about banks to learn, like, get a really good feel for what you're talking yeah. about. So banks and insurers kind of explicitly pick those
0: numbers, right? Most businesses kind of don't talk to you about that. They don't say, um, we need to do something about the fact that we're building up too much equity mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Um, like how much leverage is appropriate in terms of what we actually need for our returns. Like when people say leverage, they usually think about like the riskiness of it. Right. But there's the other element, which is if we're not leveraging things up enough, then we're not getting a good enough return for our investors. Like NVR, if they bought all that land instead of, uh, so they had a very capital heavy business, then maybe it doesn't work as well as a business. But a lot of companies won't talk to you about that. It's kind of like, well, we need to do it, you know, instead of showing you the different options that they have that way. So yeah, keeping asset growth down And, and, That's why when I say things like FICO, Dun and Bradstreet, IMS Health, what um, even things like ad agencies and stuff, why it's a little different for those companies is they're not going to have high asset growth, Mm -hmm. even if whether they we don't know if they're going to have high growth or low growth sometimes. So they're much more valuable if they have high growth because they're going to grow their earnings. I think that part of everyone's understands and it's easy for them to see right but what they may not see is the key thing is you know that in either case their assets aren't going to grow very much and that's very different than a cyclical company which can sometimes grow its assets a lot and then have earnings decline a lot resulting in very poor return on capital years and stuff Buffett companies are usually pretty good in having very mild asset growth um he likes the more predictable kinds of companies that have more sustainable high returns on invested capital and so if you look at even something like um, when he invested in American Express the first time and stuff it was a growth company of the era but it's was very good growth very high return but it very stable um, and more similar to like what Coke would be when he bought into that it's not as high growth as these sorts of um, things today that we think of as growth companies, which have a bit more risk of a rapid deterioration in profitability. The thing that's most obvious about the IBM disaster for him is that he doesn't normally invest in companies that have seriously deteriorating profitability metrics. That doesn't happen. So sometimes they do grow, sometimes they don't grow. You don't usually see like the return on capital fall apart and things like that. Their margins decline, things like that. He usually is able to invest in things that even if they're done growing, like say Apple reaches a very mature state or something, it's not gonna be something where he sees big declines in their profitability measures. So their returns
1: on capital and margins and things hold up well. Mm -hmm. You could even see from like their EBITDA per share, I mean in 2000 it was 28, and now in 2019, $268 per share.
0: Yeah, so I mean, NVR increased everything by a lot, because it has the things that you need. So if we look, let's say we'll do, um, yeah, can we go to top line things like income statement or something? Yeah, let's, okay. So return on tangible capital employed is very high, right? And even in the, one of the things that's not obvious here is that, but very important, is that it actually was very high for the four or five years or whatever, four years, I guess, in which um, it would be very bad for all our home builders because when you look at things geometrically and stuff, yes, it's nice that they had 100% return during the housing boom, but they also managed to have over 10% return during the bust. And most companies wouldn't be able to do that. So mm-hmm. it's important to have both of those. So their overall level is very high. So very high returns on capital, right? And then they did something with that capital. That's what you need to see with all of these com- the companies you look to invest in is very high return on capital, but you don't do anything with the capital doesn't work. You need a high return on capital and then you need to do something with it. and. Buffett's talked about that, like when you reinvest or when you use a dollar of earnings, let's say, do you get a dollar of market value for it? Why, I think it makes a lot of sense for a company like NVR to buy back their stock. Some people would argue, well, sometimes don't they buy back their stock when it's too expensive? They might, but on average, it seems to me a better use of their capital um, than keeping on their balance sheet and trying to do other things, right? Like, what else would they do with it? Mm -hmm. Now, there comes a point where it's dumb to do it if your PE gets too high. But for the most part, if you're buying back your stock, um, if you're buying back your stock when your PE is, you know, almost anything that they've been at. So even at places where they got up to, like, almost 30 times or something, it's not that dumb because you're... What else would you do with it? Um, You're still getting better than bond type returns in buying back stuff. You're getting the capital off your balance sheet back to the leverage ratios that you want. And you're not having to do mergers and acquisitions that you don't want to do. You're not having to go into other industries that you don't want to. If you kept it on your balance sheet, not buying back stock, you have to do something. Now, the argument that people have is, well, you could just pay it all out in dividends. And they could, Mm -hmm. you know, you could do a special dividend at the end of every year to bring you back down to leverage ratio you want, which is the other way of doing it and it's you know both of them work now nvr was cheap um for much of its period uh it's hard to say exactly how cheap at yeah, times. single digit pe's yeah but that was in the years in which people believed there was a housing boom that was irrational like that's an interesting thing people talk about if you um like see here look you see the price to book price to tangible book for instance yeah it's very high and then becomes lower so the question is, which is which was it cheaper? I know everyone thinks NVR was cheaper in two thousand, early two thousands, and more expensive in the early in like the twenty ten period. I'm not sure because it was a housing boom. It was a very cyclical st- stock. So in right, so like if you look, the stock has a P of five or something in two thousand five, but two thousand five is a very irrational period, right? Whereas in two thousand eight, is the stock cheaper because it's so cyclical? That's the thing that you have to keep in mind. Um, sales very, is very cyclical too. So I think it's hard to to tell with a company like MVR when it's cheap and when it's not. I'm not so sure what periods the stock was very cheap and what it wasn't looking at that. I've never been very sure of that with MVR. Um, I think it was cheaper on average from 2000 to 2010 than it has been lately today. That's a guess. I don't know. Um, but i find it hard to judge i think it might have been a little cheap sometimes even in the boom but i also think it was pretty cheap during the bust then i don't think it like got more expensive you know because you
1: can't use pe for a cyclical like this i know? wonder why its multiple basically got cut in half from 2017 to 2018 from 24 pe to about 10 or 11
0: i don't know some of these are very interest rate sensitive which sure. Is something to keep in mind. Some people con- are concerned a lot about that. I don't know how the stock's done recently, but most home builders have gone up a lot, which you have to be careful about because while there is a boom in, ho- in home building stuff, yeah. a lot of that's a one-time thing that happens when you change interest rates a bunch. Um, you know, just like we're talking about with the boom and the bust. So it's not that it's wrong, but like you don't want to price it off of just one USP. You can see, I mean, that's the good warning for NVR, right? This is a stock that its highest PE for a year is five times its lowest, so yeah. the returns you're going to make in this stock are going to have a lot to do with whether the multiple expands or contracts while you own it. So you might own it and think, "Isn't this great that my earnings per share went up 100% this year in yeah. the housing in a housing boom?" Yeah, but if you bought in at a P of 20 and sell at a P of 10, you've just
1: undone all of that. Yeah, yikes! What happens if eventually? I mean, they have it looks like about four million shares outstanding. You mean, they run let's, out? let's let's extrapolate <laughs> it out to 2000. 50 or 2060 what, what happens in that case well they are pretty expensive stock so they right
0: and what's the stock price on mvr do you know if the actual price that they use yeah we can't believe this. they use it um three thousand nine hundred fifty three yeah so you split a hundred for one or whatever um just go and redo it all yeah, hundred for one right a hundred for one would split them to forty dollar stock so sometimes you do a hundred to one split so you now have 400 million shares and then that lets you buy back things i mean a stock like this it's it's a home builder so it'll always attract speculative stuff sure. no matter what even if people so i'm sure that you could do that you know yeah it's a low number of shares um that's another thing is stocks with very high prices sometimes are interesting because um, it indicates a few things it indicates usually that they chose not to split which can be interesting it, it could be good why is that interesting
1: because everyone we were split. on a call recently yeah and you said you asked the person about them splitting their stock in the past and he was like yeah that was a mistake we'll never do that ever again well that was also that was also i never get
0: why companies do splits that aren't full splits um just it, personally for me trying to calculate the past you can't believe how hard it's something like a three for two split or yeah. five for two or whatever the different things that they say, which is, you know, two and a half, um, how hard those are to adjust for in your mind, or it's very easy. If I know that someone did a two for one split, sure. like I've seen companies where they do two for one splits. I don't have to see the adjusted things. I know what year they did it and, and can see that. Um, generally I prefer no, no not splitting because uh, and when looking for a stock because it's an indication that they've kind of thought about that. Right. I know that's weird because you think that not splitting your stock. Because that does that tell you that they care a lot about their stock price? Right. We don't know. I don't know what it tells you, but it tell, it's it's something that's idiosyncratic. It's something that's unusual behavior that they have that for some reason they actually have an opinion about whether you should or shouldn't split a stock. Um, I know that's weird because you would think that just naturally companies would not split stocks. Uh But in fact, the opposite is true. If a stock has gone up a lot over time, it's compounded a lot, so it ends up getting an expensive price, almost by default, they choose to split it. Um, So I think the ones that have very high prices are more interesting. Now, some of them have been reverse split to get to that level. So that's a different story. But it usually indicates that a few things. It indicates usually that they care about their stock price. They do care about it in a sense but they didn't take the advice that most people give. So for some reason, they have some sort of opinion about it. I don't know what that opinion might be, but for some reason, their opinion is different than investor relations people's and stuff might normally be. And then it also shows you, um, sometimes it shows you it's more of an overlooked stock. Other things equal a very high stock price is interesting that way. I, I did do some screening of things a long time ago And some of the odder things that screened well for finding interesting lists of stocks, right, is a very low number of shares outstanding versus the amount of years you've been public. So if a company like MVR has only 4 million shares out and it's been public for a very long time, that tends to be almost an opposite indicator from a promotional company. So for some reason, the company's either been buying back stock, not splitting, doing things like that. So not, so buying back stock, not splitting and, um, getting older for whatever reason, that combination of things gives you a very attractive list of stocks of like, um, family owned things or companies with odd cultures or whatever, versus what seems to be the normal one, which is not public for very long. You go public, go private, go public, go private, um, issuing lots of stock and, um, not buying back your stock. So like old buying back stock, not issuing is kind of anti-promotional, whereas going public and private over and over again, or, or, or just being a new company um, and those sorts of things indicate the opposite. So it tends to show up a list of like, they're not all owner operator, but they're very different kinds of companies. Um, I think that's the biggest thing because like Buffett bought into Washington Post not long after its IPO he actually bought into I believe he bought affiliate publications on an IPO basically um so it's really just a question of like it's not is it an IPO or not I wouldn't mind buying into an IPO if no one else showed up you know yeah um it's how promotional it is and stuff over time sure and so for whatever reason very high stock price tends to be associated with um, lack of willingness to just give in to whatever people are telling you about promoting your
1: stuff saying like on a per share basis so it's kind of like buffett with the a class shares and the only reason he did the b class was because people were basically replicating him and selling it as a cheaper alternative yeah for people i mean i think on a per share basis
0: i think that holds true in most industries i think nvr is compared to other home builders and stuff high price and is the least it's the most unusual of those companies i think seaboard in um in like meat processing stuff is high price and the most unusual
1: i've noticed a lot of family ran businesses Mm -hmm. tend to not split their stock it seems like right where they control the business and they don't really care so it just seems like they just don't really ever split it they just let it run
0: yeah that's an interesting question why um are they doing it because they like buffett does he doesn't want to confuse people about it attract attention to it we've seen stock splits do attract attention stuff is it because they feel like there's no need to do that it's just fine to not split it i don't think of it that way because i don't trade my stock back and forth we in the family own our stock for a while or whatever or is it they actually don't want to attract attention to the company Mm -hmm. because they'd rather own all the shares and stuff um, remember some families don't want to attract attention to the fact that they're a public company mm-hmm. um, you know some very small companies I think don't even let people in the company know that they're public and they kind of downplay that and stuff
1: that's the interesting thing too especially in microcap land mm-hmm. do your employees even know that you're public what do they think about that
0: yeah so very small companies where there's no incentives tied to stocks sometimes don't know um, that the company's public and that's an interesting thing to do but i mean i think when the stock is well when the stock performs well it's not a very big risk for the insiders so like if the business performs well over time they're a compounder you can i don't find that they're usually that worried about that but if the business does not perform well there'll be points where trades below it's it's value that could be sold to a private uh, other private companies for and stuff like it's asset value or whatever you want to call it. It's private owner value. And so when that happens, you'd attract an activist who tell you to sell the whole company. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing they never want to do. So if you're very undervalued and stuff, you run into that problem, but usually then you don't have a high, high stock price. So that's the other thing. It's kind of like the buyback thing. A reason why buybacks are interesting and probably attract Buffett is it's a, an indicator that you have free cash flow and an indicator that you're willing to buy back your stock. If you're buying back your stock, just borrowing a lot of money to buy back, it's not the same indication. And the same thing here. The very high stock price means you haven't split it, but it also means that you've compounded all sorts of value by a lot. Because your stock price won't get high unless you also manage to compound the underlying values while not splitting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that he's probably attracted to companies that are like... um, buying back stock because it indicates a shift in capital allocation for them um, mainly um, but i think that can be misleading because i think if he was investing in very small companies he wouldn't put much emphasis on buybacks so i think it's a big company th- it's it's more because obvious because they're to more us like now. a steady state of free cash flow and stuff like that no just cuz they have some place to put the money you have to do, he needs them to, he cares about their return on incremental capital. Hmm. And so it's easy for small companies to do that. We were talking about McDonald's, right? So you go back 50 years or whatever, it's easy for McDonald's to reinvest. Starbucks, right? a lot of opportunities. So there's no need for Starbucks to buy back stock and it's for until its last, whatever, 10 years of existence. There's never any need for it because it can easily just reinvest in growing the business because the the growth rate of the business is as high or higher than the profitability. I mean, I did this calculation once with a bank. We can do it with any company. But let's say a company has a 15% return on equity and it wants to pay out a third of its um, earnings and dividends, right? Then the question you have to ask is, okay, can it do that? And I think if it has about a 10% growth rate, that's really easy that we can do the math on that. But when you have companies in which their growth rates exceed their profitability, then you know that all of the profits can be reinvested in stuff that will um, generate adequate returns for you, but you could run into the problem they need to borrow. They need to do all that sort of stuff. So I always think it's a good idea to compare like the return on capital and the growth. So if we look here, for instance, with NVR, you can see this. So like their return on, even their return on assets. So after tax return on assets, which is just the lowest calculation that you can do, their actual returns would be higher than that in all sorts of ways, um, is meaningfully below their uh, revenue growth rate. So they can't grow their, presumably they can't grow their revenue as fast as um, their, their business isn't growing as fast as their profitability. In other words, their profitability is too high versus growth you know and you see this with some companies like i've mentioned this with china but chinese companies generally uh, as a group chinese public companies have growth that is too high versus profitability or profitability that's too low versus growth which suggests that you need to issue equity or borrow debt all the time and also suggest your stocks won't do very well and that's what we've seen for the most part for china as a country's done amazing stock market hasn't done that well and that's consistent with having um Poor profitability versus growth. Buffett stocks always have high profitability versus growth Never poor profitability versus growth. So they're not fast growers with lower profits They're they're never companies that need to rely on outside financing and stuff to grow So the reason why they do the buybacks is because they produce too much I mean munger said that, that that's a problem with them in their history. They really only know how to buy companies that are just cash gushers And so until they could buy the utilities and Burlington Northern, they were never able to find things that you could put things back into. And when you're a small size, it doesn't matter. You can just keep buying things with high free cash flow and do that over and over, right? Mm -hmm. But when you get really big, he runs into this problem. What do you do? And Berkshire itself has not been willing to buy back its stock in huge amounts or to pay dividends in huge amounts. So it had to find things like the railroads and the utilities.
1: What do you think happens after he passes on? Is there a new capital allocation plan with the yeah, business? Yeah, The capital allocation has to change. Which will be what?
0: I don't know what they'll pick. Um but I think buybacks and dividends make a lot of sense. It could be different sorts of ways of doing it, like declaring a special
1: dividend each year or something to get it down to a level. Maybe
0: I mean the most
1: rational one. Like do you think Ted and Todd all of a sudden are gonna be managing, you know, the hundred plus billion and, mm-hmm. yeah. and making those decisions? Yes. Um
0: But yeah, I think that maybe the right thing is to pick a level to say, okay, we need $40 billion in cash at the end of the year or whatever. And um, to the extent you exceed that, if you use in buybacks during the year, that's fine. If you don't, then you just pay out the rest in a special dividend each year. My guess would be Berkshire would avoid regular dividends. I I mean, more than most companies would. Regular dividends are kind of against the Berkshire philosophy and stuff in a way that I don't think special dividends are. Um, I'm not a huge fan of regular dividends. I think they're Why is that because it, it's only because of how companies deal with them, but I think they get themselves stuck into a situation where they believe they
1: can't cut a regular dividend. So kind of like they get stuck in the GE box, if you will, and how they thought about yeah, stuff like that. I feel that they, they get
0: themselves in a situation where they can't undo it and that's not necessarily a problem for some companies like some little company or something can do that can have a regular dividends so one product company or whatever and stick to that all the time but for lots of companies there are sometimes opportunities to you know do an acquisition get into different sorts of businesses um you know um buy back your stock but but do other things that would make sense and they might be avoided because of the problems they cause for the dividend or worse the dividend might be maintained even though you want to reinvest in your business. You want to borrow money to do something. You want to do all this stuff at the same time that you're doing it. I don't want like reinvestment in the business decisions made on the basis of there needing to be a dividend, you know um, you can imagine how dangerous that sure. is. Yeah. Um, so I, and I think it's one reason why some companies took advantage of the COVID thing to be like, oh, we can Fresh get away start. from this. Yeah, sure. that we don't have Never to. Never reinstate and then, it. And then, well, and if you do reinstate it later, then it's like that now, nev- that, we can't be blamed for that part and mm-hmm. what happened there. So that's kind of, that, that kind of one-time thing or the financial crisis or something is different. What I mean is more like something fundamentally is becoming a problem in the
1: business and yet you stick to doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. Most fascinating thing about Buffett's career, and Munger has said this, I think it was 2013 maybe, that, really about 10 investments have made his record what it is. And he basically said, take those 10 investments out and their record was very mediocre, very average. I think is what he said.
0: Yeah. I was talking to someone recently where I said that I thought all of my guess was that all of Buffett's value creation came from a few industries, um, which I guess you could divide into three things. But they're not industries they're sort of whole sectors but financial services media and consumer brands but widening that out it's all insurance and banking um it's all uh advertising supported media and advertising and um a lot in publishing and and then um you have your consumer brands but berkshire like preserved some money and kept it at s- s- sort of um like average rates and things by investing in other things, you know, they're in the railroads, they're in the utilities and things like that. Those are big because of how much capital they were able to put into them. But I think all the, like, if we want to talk about alpha and stuff was all created in really just those areas, finance, media, and brands. Um, with the exception being we're kind of excluding the partnership years. Mm-hmm. Now there's still a lot that came from those things in the partnership years too. But um, we're kind of excluding the early years of the partnership and stuff where it was from all sorts of different things. And I think Munger is too. I think he's saying the Berkshire record,
1: really. Is Mm -hmm. that way. yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on today's podcast. The spreadsheets we use, we pull from QuickFS. If you do sign up, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. Um, and be sure to check out our app, focuscompound.com app, where you get access to our podcast backlog with timeless episodes, and also a additional private premium podcast that gets uploaded on the weekends. I well, thank everybody so much for tuning in, hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you in the next podcast.